Okay, looks like we're rocking and rolling now. So we will go ahead and uh, get it going in five, four, three, two, one. Hey there, folks. This is Dan Fagella here with the Tech Emergence Podcast, where we cover the intersection of technology, psychology, and the future. And today, we're lucky to have on the line a uh, futurist and emerging technology expert who, in the last maybe year or two, I've certainly seen a lot more of. He's also CEO and founder of Sirius Wonder, uh, someone who really brings a lot of the, the topics of emerging technology to the fore in media and to the public, none other than Gray Scott himself. Gray, how are you? Good, Dan. Thanks for having me. Of course. Glad to have you here. You know, some of what I've seen you cover, and we were introduced by uh, my buddy Alex down in New York City, and, and he had introduced me to a few of your videos and interviews and the, the topics you've brought to the fore, um, is life extension. And, you know, maybe some folks have seen a, an Aubrey de Grey TED Talk or sort of heard the rumblings of some experiments on a mouse that happened, but don't really know the nitty-gritty of the frontiers that are moving forward in terms of, uh, you know, digitally or biologically to, to extend uh, life in and of itself. And we're going to go a little bit farther into the topic, but first I, I'd like to hear from you, sort of where do you see or what frontiers right now are sort of pushing us forward in that domain of life extension that you think might be relevant? Well, it's interesting because, first of all, we have to talk about why we are pursuing extreme longevity, right? So I actually think that part of the reason, reason culturally that this is becoming a relevant issue is because of a loss in the religious beliefs. And I think what's happening is, is that science has finally taken the, the high road. You know, we, science has become the new religion in a lot of ways. And a lot of people are starting to let go of that belief that when you die, you go to some sort of paradise. And hmm. I, I think because of that, people are starting to get real. They're starting to say, um, you know, if this is it, then we should make sure that this lasts as long as we can make it last, right? I mean, if it's, <laughs> yeah. if it's, if it's nothing when the lights go out. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, now, you know, I just want to put a, 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 a disclaimer out there. I am not an afterlife expert. Who knows what happens to us? Yeah, no oh, one, I have no, no idea. Knows. I'm about as agnostic as it gets when it comes to that, yeah. Yeah, but... The interesting thing is, is that, you know, we sort of look at this in the life extension and sort of transhuman field as sort of insurance, right? I mean, if we can extend our lives to 150, 300, or even 500 years, which sounds completely insane when people hear me say that, but when you start to realize what the research and, and where we are with the research, you start to realize that it's not insane, yep. that the things that used to sound like science fiction are actually becoming science fact. Yep. Um, you know, you, you briefly said something about, uh, you know, experiments on mice and things like that. Well, you know, Harvard has done experiments where they have literally reversed the age in mice. Now, the first one that was done was just age reversal in the muscle, uh, the material of the muscle. This, but and that was shocking enough, right? I mean, it reversed the age in the in the in the muscle of the mice. Now oh, that goodness. to me was very shocking, and I thought it should have been on the front page of every of every newspaper. Of course, no, but Justin Bieber's going to get that spot before the mice will. Yeah, him and Kim Kardashian. Yeah. of course, they 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 rule the the media right now. For sure. So that was that was interesting to me, and I thought, well, okay, this is groundbreaking. This is transformative, and then. Uh, there was another study that came out that they were using uh, young, younger mice and using the blood uh, in older mice. They were transferring this. And I think it 
part of it had to do with stem cells, younger stem cells versus older stem cells, and it again reversed the age of these older mice. And 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 that to me, the second time it was done, I thought was really just beyond shocking. I was future shocked at that point. I thought, okay, we are literally going to do this. And, you know, everyone's going to say, well, of course, you know, we haven't done it in humans. We don't know if it's going to work in humans. That's not the point. The point is, is that we are living in an exponential, innovative time now. And it used to be that there were, you know, 25 laboratories around the world working on specific projects. That's not the case anymore. We have laboratories everywhere. We have biohackers everywhere now. If you have a cell phone, you can participate in, you know, I mean, look at Apple's new uh, uh, Apple Watch. Yeah, yeah. We're, we're just about to cross that connected, digitally aware uh, research horizon where we are plugging in from every angle from every person on the planet, they're going to have the ability to put information into the system. And that system is going to feedback and give us feedback that's going to produce cures. Look at the, um, look at the cures that we have for cancer right now using measles um, virus. I mean, this, the, the, the idea that, you know, five years ago even, that we could take a virus modify it, put it into the body, and that it would, in 72 hours, get rid of a tumor, a brain tumor. Literally, it would be gone in 72 hours. That, five years ago, people would have been like, this is, that's insanity. Yeah, and then that's, and isn't that the history of technology altogether? And it's speeding up. And that's, sure. that's the one thing, you know, I, I told you before we started this interview that I'm, I'm working on a book, and one of the biggest themes in this book is that we, we have to understand exponential change in innovation, that it isn't a, you know, one innovative thing happens and then someone else takes that and looks at it and then they, they improve it and it doesn't work like that anymore. One thing is happening and 10 other people are working on something similar Then 50 other people are working on something. You see that what's happening is on this planet is every single time a person turns on a new cell phone or gets a new smart device in their hand that have never had it before, that that kind of shift is brand new to our species. We, we've never had that before. So it's the, what fascinates me is the psychology behind this. And I think it, there is an underlying idea that we have, we've become uh, a species that realizes that this myth of, re of religion that we've been taught is probably not true. Now, you know, again, like I said, I, I don't know what's on the other side of, of, of death. I got no, no one idea. does. Yep. But I can guarantee you that if you upload your consciousness or your mind or however you want to phrase that or your experiences or if you can, uh, you know, create a clone of yourself or if you can extend your life to, to five to seven hundred years, that is much better than taking a chance that when you die, there is nothing. I mean, I would rather have some sort of, you know, I would, I would rather have some sort of insurance policy, basically. Yeah, yeah, no, no, certainly. So, so from your perspective, and I do, I want to touch on, on, you know, why and how we might take these considerations into 
uh, effect now because some of it does seem and, and I'm I'm with you on the exponential tip and 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 I, I agree that a lot of folks would say well shucks you know it's not people yet and to be honest it it's going to be hundreds of years or thousands of years before we can um, you know I too would think that that might be far too conservative and, and that these are factors worth considering in terms of um, that uh, that religious um, sort of turnaround you know the, the, this this generation of today and, and I'm honestly I don't know the stats you know relevant you know Christian doctrine adherence in America, you know, in 1950 and in 1970, and it, like, I don't, I'm, unfortunately, I don't have those stats, but, uh, you know, at least from my own personal experience, it, it sure would appear as though, um, you know, you had mentioned almost kind of like the religion of science. I don't think it's intended to be as such, but I think it, it likely will be whether it wants to be or not. Do you see that as sort of one of the major promoters and, and, and sort of incentives for this life extension technology and, and do you see that same shift as as maybe influencing our desire to go beyond ourselves in other ways too and if so how well i do because the, the myth of a paradise that waits for you where you you rejoin everyone you've ever known and everything's perfect and you know alan watts said that uh, the philosopher alan watts said yeah. once in one of his talks he thought he said that just sounds so dreadful <laughs> you know, a paradise of perfection where everyone rejoins and lives happily ever after. It just sounds dreadful. And, I mean, I understand and I understood what he was saying when he said that. It, You know, a full sensorial experience, you cannot have uh, full enjoyment of your life without some sort of pain. There has to be uh, some parameter between perfection and total chaos. At, at least with our current neural substrates. I imagine there might be a way to rewire uh, the upstairs so that the gestalt of pain isn't as necessary for the gestalt well, of happiness. But Absolutely, and, and that's a perfect uh, point, is that you know I, people have talked about utopia, and I, I, I believe that we can shift that parameter higher into a higher state. So in other words, you know, I dream of a world in the future where a paper cut is a tragedy, right? <laughs> I mean, <laughs> that's the world that I want us to live in. But that's still going to be pain, and it will be horrifying for people. Um, Relatively speaking, yes. It, absolutely. But yeah. we can raise the parameters so that people aren't starving to death on this planet. People aren't being kept in, in slavery and, and sold as, as sexual objects. I mean, this kind of torturous painful experience that needs to be eradicated and I do think that we're moving towards that now the idea is for me really is that if if we come to terms with the fact that there is no afterlife that that this idea this myth of religion was a very critical myth to be told at a certain uh, certain period but that myth doesn't we don't need that myth anymore okay we we can live in a reality without that religious myth. And I think because of that, people are starting to ask themselves some very serious questions. You know, if there is no afterlife and my story doesn't continue after I die, then what am I here for? What's the purpose of our species? What's the purpose of the cosmos? What is the cosmos? So these are all very deep... Uh, Existential concerns. Absolutely. And, and when you start going down that rabbit hole, time is always sort of a, a co-conspirator in that thinking, right? You, 
and, and I think that's why I became a futurist is because I'm always thinking about time as an extension to how we think, right? Um, when you think about the cosmos, that, that time scale, when you think about the cosmos, is so skewed. I mean, we think of the cosmos from the human point of view, right? And that is a very small, I mean, so small, in fact, that beings outside of our, our, our solar system, and I'm, I'm absolutely positive that there are other intelligent beings in our cosmos, um, their time scale may be so skewed and, and so different than ours. Their time dilation may be so different that they may not even see us. We may be so slow or we may be so small. And so we really have yet to tap into um, the full potential of, of that new myth. The new myth is what can we prove, right? What can we manipulate in this physical world instead of focusing on some story that we tell ourselves about an afterlife? I think it's interesting that now we're becoming fascinated with the material world in a way. So I think because of that, this is why this, the, the state of technical hardware is, is emerging, right? We are manifesting the material state of the, the cosmos into a tangible thing that we can hold in our hands and type mm -hmm. on, right? We are creating apps that can tap into the neurological circuitry of our, uh, of our people and our family and our loved ones around the world, no matter where they are. I mean, that is a myth <laughs> that if you told... Oh, no, of course. It's, it's magic. We would, we would be monsters or gods to the previous generations. Oh, I mean, God. with no even, exceptions. Even 300 years ago. Oh, no, I mean, even 200. Oh, yeah, give me oh, a yeah, break. Yeah. I mean, oh, goodness. Yeah. Just absolutely. absolutely out of this world. And, and, and your position here, and, and, and I, you know, I mean, it, uh, Kurzweil obviously hammers this, this home pretty hard, and I think that, that a lot of folks that, that aim to stay very plugged in here um, uh, bring this to the fore, this, this notion of, of um, the, the heightening rate of change. To speak a little bit, Gray, as to why you believe that um, uh, these considerations around, if, if we hang out with life extension just for now, and I'm sure we'll extend beyond it again, uh, why considerations around life extension, given where we are today, are relevant to us and what we might even do about them. You know, should we should we be considering global policy? Should we be considering research direction? Should we be planning out economic models that involve 400-year-old people? Um, you know, what what could we reasonably and tangibly do besides sort of just let the scientists do their thing? Why ought the public or would the public uh, consider, contemplate, digest, um, and maybe even factor in what's happening now in, in the life extension space specifically? Because every one of us is going to face this dilemma eventually. Every single one of us. You know, none of us escapes this planet alive. I mean, that's, that's, this experience ends in death as of right now. Yep. And what we're trying to do in the life extension field is we're really trying to, and this is my job is to, to talk to the media and talk to the masses. I'm not a researcher. I'm not an academic. My job is to communicate. Yep. And, and, my role in communicating is also about getting people to, to take the first step, which is rethink the myth that they've been telling themselves, question whether that is really accurate with all of the facts and, and all of the science that we have, and then take the next step and say, what can we do about it? Now, the first thing 
that I think is really the most critical thing is whoever becomes the next president of the United States, they're going to have to have that conversation because by the time 2016 rolls around, the, the headlines in the longevity field and, and the research that's going to be happening by 2016 and 2017 and 18 is going to become so loud and so insane that they're going to be forced to have that conversation. Now, one of the ways that I think this is going to happen is I would say probably by 2017, uh, human trials will be in full swing on different levels with different applications in longevity. And we will start to see age reversal at, even if it's in one area of the body, even if it's the skin. Liver cells or something like that. It doesn't matter yeah, if yeah, it's yeah. one or two cells in the body or one organ in the body. If we accomplish that, then we have proven that you can reverse age in humans. And once that happens, there is going to be a race, a there's going to, I don't want to call it a longevity war, but there is going to no, be... Man, it's, 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 it's the economy, you know? It is what oh it God. is, right? I, it is can what you it imagine... Is, I don't know what to tell we, you. If, if we get this technology, China could say to every one of its children, you have to start these treatments immediately. It could say to specific people, uh, and I'm not just, not just China, it could be all of the countries around the world will start competing with longevity research and with using longevity uh, medications and applications. And so think about how that's going to change everything. I mean, think about what it does to the economy. Think about what, what it does to population. Think about what it does to, to people having new babies. What, what will the rules be if, if people start living three or 400 years? What will the rules be to people who want to have children? Yeah, I, and I'm, I'm actually of the supposition that I mean, if, if you can live 200 years, you know, 300 years, you're probably all set. Um, and, and if you can live 300 years, uh, that digitally or otherwise, the, the, continuous and ex the continuation and extension of, of yourself may, may in fact be uh, more than viable. So, no, I, I'm completely with you. And, and, and I think, Ray, this brings to the fore a question that I've actually asked many of our speakers, including Juan Enriquez, who was just on the, the show uh, before you, you know, and, and you brought it up right there, you know, these technologies are going to be hitting the ground running uh, in exponential degrees of growth around the world in the coming decades ahead. Um, and, and hopefully, I'm crossing my fingers, you know, you were talking about the, the world you hope to see. I don't quite know what the utopia is, but, I, but what I can tell you that I personally hope for is I personally hope that we'll be able to have the well-intended and open-minded conversation about creating what the best-ish world might be for people, and that, that might be the best way for us to actually find one. How? When China, everywhere else in the world, uh, you know, has their own initiatives and wants their people to live forever, and there's, you know, these quote-unquote longevity wars, as you had mentioned, you know, if we want to use that, I'm not saying there's going to be bombs and guns, but I don't know, maybe there will be, you know, some degree of super soldierdom or something like that. I'm not going Terminator on us right now. But, you know, uh, given the fact that there's going to be different political ideologies, different um, uh, national uh, interests in mind and at play, uh, economic interests in mind and at play, you know, given the fact that there's all these different political ideologies and different perspectives out there in the world and potentially competing perspectives about what the right moves forward are for humanity, how can we across nations, across those political ideologies, get along to the degree of aggregately building a better future and not 
maybe wrecking ourselves in, in the control of and wielding of these technologies? How, how do we move towards that? Well, one of the things that I've talked about quite a bit is the, how technology has increased our empathy. And you see it everywhere now. Um, you know, if you, if you just follow the news and if you don't really look deeper than the, the mainstream media's uh, headlines, of course things seem... Um, Tragic, worse. oh, bombs everywhere. Yeah, yeah of course. I mean, you know, the media is media. Cut off and people set on fire and there's yeah. mass murder and, you know, Ebola's breaking out. And listen, this stuff has been going on forever. Yeah, it's, it's, not, it's not quite as bad as it was in the Roman Empire or anything like that. Uh, well, that's the thing. People say, oh, it's so bad. No, trust me. No, Ro Rome was you, bad, man, you know? <laughs> I mean, if you drank the wrong water, you were dead, right? <laughs> I mean, you know, people don't realize that the life expectancy was like 30 years old, if you were lucky. And so, you know, and the thing that really uh, sort of stuns me about when you, when you talk to the general public about whether the world's getting better or worse is that they quote you the same headlines over and over again. You know, they talk about ISIS, they talk about Ebola, they talk about these things that, and I always say to people, how did you find out about this? And they say, oh, well, I found it, you know, I, I found it on my, on my iPhone, my, my smartphone, Android, whatever. Yep. And I say, you know, you know, 20 years ago, and I remember when there were no cell phones. I mean, 20 years ago. <laughs> the old days, Gray, the, the really old, old days. days. <laughs> I mean, you would not have had that information in your hand. And I think what's happening is people, they're experiencing exponential information and that makes it feel like it's more. It's There's more. Well, of course, you're getting more information every time something happens, right? A lot of the stuff in the early 90s and the late 80s, this stuff was happening and most people never even heard about it. Then it just, their lives went on. They never heard that this happened. Yeah. And so, I'm, I mean, I in, in the 1600s, too. I mean, how much worse was it than that? I mean, we had no idea what was happening outside I mean, of your... I you needed a horse, a boat, you know? Yeah, you need, yeah, a horse... <laughs> and, some, and some fires burning on the tops of mountains. Yeah, that, that's exactly, exactly. Goodness gracious. So, yeah, I don't give a lot of uh, credit to people who say that things are getting worse. And in fact, if you read any of Peter Diamandis's work, I mean, he's proven over and over and over again, statistically, that the world is actually getting much better. We're much safer. We have less war. We have less disease. And so, you know, we still, of course, we still have problems and we're facing these problems. But here's the one thing that I have found that is, is starting to be true. Empathy has increased on this planet. And the, the reason, I think, is because you have this device that you carry around in your pocket that, that buzzes and rings every time something happens in the world. And whether it's negative or positive, your friends are there on social media and they're chiming in saying, isn't this awful? Or how can we help? Or what would you do? And there's discussion happening. We never had that before. We never had, you know, if there was a tragedy before, we just sort of kept it to ourselves. Maybe we talked to our families. But you have systems in place now that, that are strapped to your body, you know, in some form or another uh, with smartphones that allow you to feel what it would be like in those situations. I mean, remember when the girls were kidnapped in Africa, there was a huge outcry about yeah, this. Yeah, yeah. People were aware of it. They felt that event. And so I think the overarching idea is if we can continue to increase our empathy on this planet, the future is more than likely going to be a playground of how can we help each other. Yeah, so, so 
in your perspective, if we can, if we can uh, continue on the trajectory of, and, and I think some of it also, great has to do with the fact that we're seeing other humans as humans. I mean, for up until how long ago, I mean, geez, even segregation in the United States, were there still these tribal undercurrents of village to village, skin color to skin color, language to language, child to adult, man to woman, uh, that have sort of been chiseled away. And I think that that, in addition to, and, and I don't know about proving with Diamandis, but I, but I will say I'm very much on the tip and I'm very much of the belief that um, on the aggregate, things, to you, for lack of a better term, uh, are, are uh, certainly getting better. I think that we've seen so many of those shifts, and it sounds like you're of the belief that if we can keep that trajectory up, um, then then our connectedness will promote the this kind of aggregate empathy that will make us want to hopefully unite around what a good future is. Well, I think that's part of it. I mean, of course, there's no uh, one rule for every uh, person on this planet. Certainly. I mean, We've never agreed completely on anything on this nope, planet. No, nope. And no technology has ever been given to every single person on this planet. We still have people that don't have clean water. Oh, yeah. I mean, and we've had water filtration systems and technologies for, you know, a long, long time. And yep. so, you know, part of – I think there are there are problem areas. Um, you know, I have, I've been very critical about uh, Silicon Valley because I think hmm. there is – there's a lot of uh, psychological uh, issues going on there that people are not addressing. Um, I think there's been way too much emphasis on money. And I think that's, you know, the future is not about money. And I don't know why these startups aren't realizing that. The future is not about money. In fact, as crazy as it sounds, the de decentralization there is no way, let me put it this way, because this is just the easiest way to put it. Yeah. There is no way that capitalism can survive decentralized technologies. No way. And what I mean by that is if you put a 3D printer in every house, and if we can figure out how to teleport material and, and send wireless energy and build free solar panels and store energy, I mean, that kind of decentralization will end that capitalistic notion, and I don't understand why so many of the companies are putting this idea of, of money as the new religion in Silicon Valley. I mean, you know, you can't tell startups in Silicon Valley, you can't tell them anything, because unless you have a billion dollars, that's the only time that they tend to listen. And that is telling, I think that what that is saying is that they've, uh, and we're talking about a certain age group here too. Um, and I'll give you a specific example. Sure. This is a perfect example. Sure, I sure. went to a, a design conference here in New York, and it was a younger crowd. I mean, we're talking like you know, nineteen to you know, twenty-seven, whatever. Yep. And there were these two uh, girls standing there. It was, we were having drinks, and I said, "So, what are you studying?" And they they were studying design, uh, you know, hardware design, whatever. And I said, well, because I'm always interested in sort of people's undercurrent, their sort of morality and their what makes them tick, and because um, that's <laughs> that's going to tell you what they're going to design. I mean, if you asked Steve Jobs before he became famous some of these questions, you you would be you would have known what he was going to do. And so I asked them. I said, you know, what do you think about planned obsolescence? And they sort of looked like no one had ever asked them this question before. And they looked at each other and they sort of smiled and they turned back to me and they go. 
oh, we think it's great. It's such a great thing. It's a great idea. And they were totally serious. There was no irony. They weren't being funny. They really believe that planned obsolescence is, is a good design idea. This is the problem that Silicon Valley is facing. And it's remind us remind us the definition, Gray, planned obsolescence again. So planned obsolescence is, is what you get every time you buy an iPhone, right? Every time you buy an iPhone, there's a certain date that that device is built to last. Yeah, now, and then you need a new charger. You need It doesn't plug into your absolutely. old programs anymore. It doesn't. Yep. I mean, listen, how many times have they changed the design of the iPhone so that you're forced... I mean, listen, you can't charge the new iPhone 6 with the same charger you were charging with you know, no. two generations ago. Yeah, yeah. No, that's so true. that's just one example, but it, you see it everywhere. Planned obsolescence is built into so many devices now. And it's, of course, for the stockholders, it's a great idea, right? Yeah. But we have to get past being a society. My phone just fell on the floor. That's, that's, uh, <laughs> We've that's been a there young, once or twice. Jungian sort of... Uh, <laughs> Omen anyway, of sorts. Um... We have to get past, as a society, using this idea of planned obsolescence and trickery and, I mean, it's just ridiculous. It's like, and plus we're getting so smart now that people can see it coming a mile away. I mean, I don't know, I, I'm shocked that Apple can still get away with it. Yeah, no, we're all, I mean, doesn't everybody feel the same way? Like, is there anybody that's like, oh man, you know, that, that new, um... That new that new charger, I, I I think it actually charges a lot faster. That that's cool. I'm actually gonna get a new phone. You know, it doesn't everybody doesn't everybody grumble. You know, uh, doesn't everybody say, "Are you serious?" You know, like, do I really need? Does it cost fifty bucks for that piece of rubber and like whatever metal is in there? Like, do I do do I need that? But yeah, I mean, I I agree with you. I think you know, um, but but they do get away with it, don't they, Greg? Well, not really. I mean. Here's the thing. At least to some level. At least to some level. Well, yeah, but you have to take a long-term view when you're talking about foresight because what, what happens with – so this is a, a perfect example. Um, what happens is, say, for Blockbuster, when Blockbuster was king of, of video. You know, Blockbuster at the time, uh, the, the whole reason this happened was because one of their, their customers kept <laughs> forgetting to return uh, the videos and, of course – you know, the guy was like, there has to be a better way. I'm getting hundreds and hundreds of dollars of, of late uh, return fees. And so this is the guy that started Netflix. I mean, he, he realized, he saw that the digitization of, of films was coming. Yep. And he decided to do it. Now, if Blockbuster, why Blockbuster didn't see this, I have no idea. Because I don't know the inner workings no, yep. of, of their company at that time. But... They, if Blockbuster had used a futurist or if they had consulted with foresight experts, and I, I don't know that they didn't, but obviously they didn't get the right advice, someone should have told them because the information was there. I mean, this was 1996, 97, around that. Yep. Someone should have said to them, we need to digitize this stuff. And it's the same thing that's happening with HBO right now. HBO has realized that TV is over. TV is over. I mean, the remnants of what we're seeing on television right now is uh, these are very classic shows and very classic strategies used for television. But I'm telling you, who watches television anymore? We don't have time. We're not a society that needs to be sitting on our sofa at 8 o'clock every Wednesday. We don't live like that anymore. And so, you know, HBO got it. HBO now has said, okay, we're going we're gonna to start a streaming service on through iTunes, and they're ahead of the game. And so... 
these are the kinds of, of course, this is the kind of stuff, this is the kind of work that I do. I, I'm constantly looking, I call them the future echoes, right? These are, these are people who make statements over and over and over again in different cultures and around the world. When you start to see that, you know that you're, you're hearing a future echo. And dealing with longevity, going sort of taking this back to longevity, that is something that we're starting to deal with as a future echo. People are starting to question what happens after death. They've been doing this, you know, from the beginning of time, but now with all the scientific research and brain studies, and we're starting to see this, this echo that's here, this, this idea that, oh, okay, we may not have this paradise waiting for us at the end of the road, and so what can we do about this? Um, you know, there's a lot of deep um, primal stuff going on when we talk about longevity, too. I mean, you know, everyone's afraid of death, whether they realize it or not. Uh, complete annihilation is, like, our uh, greatest fear. Yeah, there's some troubling uh, components to that, for sure. Oh, it's unimaginable. That's the void, yeah. That, that's that's yeah. looking at the void pretty, pretty sternly. Yeah. So I think, you know, that idea that we've increased our empathy, that we are more uh, sensitive to other people's experiences on a certain level, that with science and the loss of, of religion, that is leading us towards this idea of, okay, so what do we do about it? What, what, what's the next stage? And the next stage is researching longevity, uh, you know, getting politicians to be uh, honest and active and start having that conversation that it's not science, science fiction anymore, that this is actually going to happen. Longevity is going to happen. I mean, age reversal is going to happen. Um, I am very careful about not making sort of specific predictions like Ray does because... Yeah, that, that gets dangerous. And then you have to defend well, him even when you're wrong, and then you sort of look silly. Well, and the thing is, too, is... I mean, I've done it before, but it's not something that I love doing. I mean, my thing is, is you know, everything is on a, a time scale, and that time scale is, is, is based off of your psychology. I mean... I'm a very open-minded person, and I'm, I'm very open to new ideas, and so my time scale is much faster than most people's time scale. I, I see how fast this is going to happen. But you, you talk about longevity, someone who, who is very closed to new ideas, and they're, they're, you know, they need to see it in their friends' lives and in their family's lives before they think it's real. Yep. That kind of thinking is very dangerous in, in startups. It's very dangerous in CEOs. And it's uh, dangerous in politicians because they don't think it's real until it's happening to them. Yeah, and, and I think, you know, and I've, I've made this analogy before, Gray, maybe this will be a, a note to kind of wrap on and riff on is, is uh, you know, in some sense, you know, the environment, and I, again, the an analogy I've harkened to before, you know, in the, in the 60s, let's say, I mean, I'm sure there was oodles of pollution. I mean, there was oodles of pollution in 1890, but in the 60s, you know, we didn't have, you know, an entire Texas-sized you know, swirling dervish of, of plastic in the middle of the ocean, yet uh, we didn't, we weren't quite aware of some of the correlations with, you know, different pollutants in the environment and whatever else. And, and, and even now, you know, the ice caps haven't totally melted, right? I mean, we're not all flooding. New York City isn't underwater yet. And so it still can get, if it needs to be, it still can get shoved under the rug because there hasn't been a Pearl Harbor equivalent to the environment. And, and one of my trepidations is that very important considerations around life extension and human enhancement um, 
will also really not get any play in terms of uh, politics, policy, and real consideration from from humanity, real ethical, frenetic thought about what is best and how do we apply this, that those thoughts will come too late. And, and it sounds like, um, you know, for life extension from your perspective, you'd, you'd hope that that wouldn't happen either. Well, I mean, the problem that we're facing right now is an environmental uh, problem. I mean, we're, we're, we're facing a serious side effect from the technologies that we've created. And that's, uh, you know, every new technology goes through this phase. We always have the sort of clumsy, dangerous technology birth, right? Yeah, like I the mean, Wright brothers. I mean, the Wright brothers are a great example. Yeah, I mean, listen. No one's going to ride that thing. <laughs> and, I mean, seriously, you know, the, the airplanes that were around in the beginning are much scarier. <laughs> we're much scarier than the airplanes. I mean, I, I anybody that flies today, if you would put them in a plane when the planes first started uh, flying, they would be so frightened. Terrified. Terrified. They'd be so terrified because, you know, getting on this plane and you, you, you could probably feel every bump and, oh, yeah, no, no, no. We, we always have a curve of the, the, the sort of walking stage, learning to, to find our ground and learning how to, to uh, figure out what works and doesn't work. And, you know, we've made very bad decisions based off of money. And this is, you know, I'll sort of take it back there for a second. For a very long time, we thought we could burn our way through the fossil fuels on this planet. We thought we could just produce any sort of material that the side effect wouldn't, you know, you know, as long as it gets taken out at night in the trash, who cares where it goes? Well, now it's washing up on people's shore in California, and they're starting to say, oh, well, maybe we should pay attention to this. So it's becoming real because it's, again, it's starting to affect them. It's starting to yep. affect their lives. Yep. And the problem is, is that we waited way too long to come up with new technologies to fix the issue. So, for example... You know, there are lots of different materials now being used that is, we're talking about biodegradable uh, plastics. You know, one example is corn, using corn uh, to make plastics that can dissolve. Yep. And so that kind of thinking, this sort of green movement into the, the sort of blue movement where it's, it's not just green, it's actually moved into a new stage where it gives back to the earth, right? So you see companies that are, in, they're putting seeds in, um, in tags that hang on clothing, and so when you cut that off and you throw it away, uh, or if you uh, you can take that and you yeah, can plant that's curious, it. yeah, yeah, you can plant it in your garden, and you you're growing a seed out of your coffee cup. I mean, these are the, this is the kind of thinking that we're in now, but but it took us, I think, way too long, um, and that's what I'm you know going back to this whole thing of of longevity and the research and sort of startups. Um, I would love to see, and and this is starting to happen. I mean. You know, Peter uh, Thiel, the creator of PayPal, has made it one of his missions to deal with, with longevity. And, I mean, he, he's a billionaire. I mean, he has the money. Yeah, he's got the dollars, man, yeah. Yeah, he's got the money. And going back to my statement that, that you know, these startups, these kids, they, they are sort of ruled by the dollar to a certain degree, even though their tagline is we want to make the world better. Yeah, okay, you made Facebook to make the world better. Um you know, the, I mean, I, I don't want to be too critical, but it's it's just okay enough already. We're we're into you know we're we're fifteen twenty years deep into it now. It's time to start making better decisions. And when you have people like Peter Thiel who says, 
I'm going to make it my mission to end aging or, or, you know, at least, uh, put, you know, put a spotlight on this idea of longevity. People in, in Silicon Valley start to listen because he has the money. And so I'm very optimistic because of him. And I think Peter Diamandis, uh, Aubrey de Grey, you know, people who are actually moving to Silicon Valley and that, that are living there that are starting to say, okay, it's not about making money. The future is not about making money. The future is about making people's lives better, truly making their lives better. Um, and <clears throat> I do think that's possible. And there are lots of really amazing startups out there that are trying to make that happen, but you still have the big players that just don't seem to get it. I mean, I, you know, I'm constantly furious with Facebook. Um, it, <laughs> I mean, constantly. It seems like every decision they make is is in the wrong direction. You're like, okay, the point of Facebook is to feel connected to my friends and my family. I mean, that's the whole point of Facebook for me. But now it's tur- now that these new algorithms come out, where it's you know, my friends and family don't even see what I'm posting. Because they're trying to make money on advertising. You know, they want to force me to pay to, to have my posts sent to my family and friends. It's like, oh, is that really the direction we want to go with the future? I mean, it just seems like a dead-end road. But, um, you know, I think it's going to take some time for people to really realize that we are getting smarter as a species. And, and you know, the same sort of advertising tricks that worked in the late 80s and early 90s, just that's not going to work anymore. It's why you're, you're seeing all of these different trends and advertising starts to develop. Um, so, I don't know. I yeah, think... huh. it, it sounds like you have some optimism around if these conversations, such as to some degree what we're having here today, make it through to the where the kind of movers and shakers might be or might be starting off. Um, and, and if the folks that have clout there are are able to proliferate this conversation, then, then maybe we'll be able to... Um, bring these considerations to the fore, these considerations about what the, and I have no idea, by the way, economically, I, I probably don't have as, as firm a discerned notions economically as you might at this point, just because I don't study it as much. But, um, you know, that that uh, having Teal and Diamandis and, and other folks out there sharing this in that space, that for you, that is at least to some degree a, a point of optimism about our future in terms of carrying this forward in a, in a better direction? Well, I do think so. I mean, you know, uh, I was really excited when Google announced Calico, their sort of longevity research uh, division. Um, That, to me, was very exciting. And I think their driverless car, Google's driverless car research is really exciting because what, and whatever the motives are behind that, and and I've had deep dive discussions about, you know, the, the reason they're doing these driverless cars is so they can advertise to you as you drive by stores, whatever, whatever. The oh, yeah, yeah, is. yeah. Watch yourself. Yeah. I mean, you yeah, know, we're I still, mean, we're still in a, in a, in a, you know, they, they still actually do have to pay employees in real money. So unfortunately we are in that world right now, but, but no, I know what you mean. It's you know, we can't ponder the farther reaches. Well, and I also think that there are side effects that sometimes are unintended, right? I mean, For sure. You know, we know that using driverless cars is going to save a lot of lives because people are just bad drivers. We are we are we are not good decision makers when it comes to driving these these machines. We've that's been proven, and so a lot of lives are going to be saved because of this. So that may whether that was their original intention or not, it doesn't really matter. Um, 
but it seems that they're on this trend towards making uh, people's lives better in a, in a certain way. I don't see that from a lot of the, the other big startups. Um, that concerns me. I mean, I think what Uber is doing is fantastic. Um, I, you know, that's empowering people to, to, who may, may not have a job to suddenly have in their hand a way to like, you know, as long as they have a car and a cell phone, they can really make money. Yeah. Um, that decentralizes employment to a certain degree. So, you know, if, if the economy ever crashed again and Uber still works, you think people are going to pay money to, to ride? No, they're going to barter. They're going to say, come pick me up. I have like, you know. I have a pizza. I have a pizza I can give <laughs> you for my ride. I mean, this this wasn't available to us in the first um, major recession in 2008 and 2009. You know, you saw these, these um, bartering systems pop up on the street, but you didn't necessarily see them on apps. Well, you know, if it ever happens again, it's going to be a, a completely different story. So I am optimistic uh, towards certain companies, but I can tell you within uh, literally within three to four minutes, as I'm sure because you have a, a history in psychology as well, I can tell within three or four minutes what kind of uh, technology is going to come out of the mind of the person I'm dealing with. And that is based off of just my experience as a human being. And, and I've you know traveled the world and I've met a zillion people. And on top of the fact that I study futures, you know, that is, that's my main job. And you can always see this trend in specific personality types. And there's certain personality types that are running some of these major uh, companies that it worries me. It worries me that they're more concerned with, you know, pushing advertising on us instead of saying we've made billions and billions of dollars. How much more do you actually need? And put that money, like Google has done, put that money into longevity research. I mean, Google could drop billions of dollars into longevity and speed this up. Facebook could do the same thing. Yeah. And so our governments could do the same thing. And, you know, <clears throat> you know, uh, Zoltan Istvan is running for president for 2016. Yep. And he is the transhumanist party um, candidate. And he, he actually asked me, I'm, I'm the futurist advisor for, for the transhumanist party. And he asked me to come on board. And I jumped at the opportunity because I want, and I hope that he gets enough momentum. You know, he said, you know, he's not going to win and, and there's not a chance and all of this, but... It's not about that, and he knows that. The, the idea is that we are forcing politicians to have that discussion. And I hope that he gets enough momentum and steam that, that Hillary Clinton is forced to say in one of the – to answer a question about transhumanism in one of the debates would be the biggest thing to happen for humanity in a very long time. Because what it would do, it would force – our society in America to, to say, well, what's transhumanism? The put people who've never put heard it of. on the Richter scale, right? Get it, get it, get it out there. Disperse it. Let it be consumed and jostled and discerned and contemplated. Um, because how else are we going to make progress? Absolutely. And and hopefully, so, at least on some level, that's what we were able to do uh, today and being able to share this conversation. Obviously, that's part of the purpose of your work. I certainly see it as part of the purpose um, of mine. And actually, although I haven't met Zoltan, I'm, I'm uh, and, and I don't know too much about his own ideologies, I think that 
you know, it, um, on, on the one hand, you know, the, the films about AI and emerging technology that are, there's a lot around AI now for whatever reason, there's a little bit of a, uh, a spike here that, that those films are, are getting some of these considerations that are a little bit farther out onto the Richter scale, but that if we can hit the ground in a political way around policies and real considerations about the future of humanity, maybe we'll get even farther. And I'm sure you and I could jostle these for these, these, uh, same topics forever, and, and uh, I almost feel like we're, we've been sitting down and drinking a coffee and just playing ping pong with these notions, which has been a, a blast. And I'm sure there's some other people who are tuned in now who could um, you know, delve a lot deeper into any of these uh, individual topics that we've covered. If people want to learn more from you, I certainly, Greg, I appreciate you going overtime with me here and, and really kind of even going beyond life extension to sort of considerations around economy and, and startups and sort of the, the state of where this is with our, our country. Um, if people want to learn more from you and find you on the web, where would they go? So the easiest way to find me is just to go to my website, which is grayscott.com. And I'm on Twitter, same thing, Gray Scott. Uh, I, I also have uh, seriouswonder.com is my online emerging tech um, media site. Yep. Yeah, it's sort of a, it's a magazine sort of devoted to the stuff that we've been talking about. And, yep. and when people go there and they see it, typically they come away saying, you know, all of these, are, I've never heard of the stuff that you guys are writing about um, because the mainstream media just doesn't necessarily no, cover it. For so, sure. yeah. Cool. So very good. So that's, that's where to find it. Mr. Gray, thank you very much for being here on the Tech Emergent Podcast. I appreciate it. Thanks so much, Dan. Hey, thanks for tuning in, guys. If you're an entrepreneur or a future thinker uh, with an interest in businesses, transitions, or technologies that have the potential to alter human potential, then make sure you check out techemergence.com. It's our main blog site where you can see all of our other interviews with uh, top startup leaders, uh, entrepreneurship experts, and folks in the domain of technology, cutting-edge emerging technology. Uh, if you have a particular interest in how technology can affect the future of human consciousness and our conscious experience, and be sure to also check out sentientpotential.com. There we explore a lot of the ethical considerations and really serious moral matters of emerging technologies, in addition to interviews with great philosophers and technology experts of our day. Uh, more than anything else, always feel free to reach out if you can find us via email. Um, you can reach out to us there or whatever other way. Find us on the blog. Be sure to drop comments. We believe that the serious uh, conversation about the future is not only open-minded, but also interdisciplinary and multifaceted. So we'd like nothing more than to be able to glean your ideas as well. Um, so with that being said, with the best of intentions for a brilliant future, this is Dan Fagella signing off. And we'll see you next week. <laughs>